everyone. Welcome back to an all new episode of the 20% podcast. This is the show where we bring you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you could implement in your current job today. I'm so excited for this week's guest. He's done it all from studying psychology in school to owning restaurants to crushing it in the customer success world, ultimately coming full circle and owning his own little, um, his own consultancy, which he just jumped into recently as well, which we'll talk about. So without further ado, please welcome Rob Zambito to the 20% podcast. Rob, what's happening, man? Things are good. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I appreciate it. I'm excited to chat today. I'm so excited. And we got connected. I need to give a big shout out to um, Scott Lease and Ryan Walker. GTM United was, was the group that uh, ultimately united us for a lack of better term. Um, and, uh, and it's also great too, Rob, the first time we were chatting a couple weeks ago, we found out that we are also both local to the Philadelphia area. So it's really cool to have some of those, uh, those local ties as well, which, which we'll jump into, but before it, you know, obviously you went to the university of Penn, you were, uh, you lived in the Philadelphia area, which we could jump into, but let's talk about what Rob was like as a child. So before <laughs> the university of Penn psychology days, uh, what were some of, what were you like as a kid and what were some of those first jobs like before college? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, not a question that I have uh, a necessarily prepared answer for, but I, I was a very, uh, I was very sensitive and fearful kid. <laughs> I, I was very reluctant. I was very reluctant to to do much of anything, hobbies, go to school, anything. And so it's kind of ironic that I eventually, like, I guess in my adolescent years, sort of found myself gravitating wholly in the opposite direction, just became like super nerdy in high school. Um, leading my debate team uh, was a, <laughs> sort of a, a, a key part of my high school experience. Um, so I would spend, you know, every weekend traveling on traveling around the country, going on debate tournaments, that kind of thing. Um, so that was fun. And I think that that taught me a ton that ultimately led to not just my, you know, academic career that followed but also uh you know still I, I still say everything boils back to a debate round in my head <laughs> not that I debate a lot I'm actually very agreeable as a person but the way that if you think about the way to structure arguments and structure unsitu unstructured situations it all kind of comes back to that fr frameworks that I established when I was like in my teenage years Rob, you're talking, you're, you're music to my ears. This is what's all the 20% podcast is about. It's about those foundational building blocks that led to that future success. Those were the, right. uh, the foundation to, to you as well. Now let's yeah. talk about two areas before we jump into the psychology. It's number one, you mentioned that you were, you were this shy kid, or maybe you were sensitive and fearful and, and really um, what number one, what caused you to break out of your shell? Like what, what did that process look like? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I I uh I mean I think debate was a part of it right because I think um sort of taught me to be uh, very verbose and to dig deeply into I see the the book start with why behind you it's a book that I I know very well actually just gave a, a presentation on recently um as it applies to customer success but but yeah I think that uh, there were a variety of sort of formative experiences that, that got me out of my shell, mostly coming back to the debate team. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah. And let's continue that onto the debate team as well. What caused you, if you were this shy, quiet kid, potentially, why would you want to go into debate team? And then ultimately you mentioned a couple of those areas as well, but what, what are the, some of those main skills besides doing research and, and knowing how to communicate effectively? What were some of those other key, um, traits and, and lessons that you learned from from that experience 
Yeah, I think one of them that I still use today is that uh, is using the Socratic method and proving a point by asking questions. And I use that a lot today because, like for example, uh, you know, I work on a lot of like objection rebuttal handling with CS teams. If it comes to like closing a renewal, for example, like you're going to get objections, or if you're trying to get a price increase across the line, or if you're trying to upsell a certain product, that kind of thing, you're going to get a ton of objections. And to educate the customer by way of asking just very thoughtful, open-ended questions to get them to the destination that you know is hopefully best for them um, is a skill that I learned in debate through this, you know, in debate, there's cross-examination after all of the first few speeches where the requirement is that you can only ask questions. And I, I learned this sort of art very early on um, that I still use very effectively today. That's just one of many. Uh, but uh, one that I think is very relevant for probably your your podcast audience. No, no, I love that. And I think you think about, I mean, like when you break down sales, customer success, all of the, any kind of business, it's all about communications, problem solving. Um, and two, it sounds like you're using some of these little Jedi mind tricks, essentially, <laughs> to, to lead them to, to where you want to go. But that's what, in essence, what we're doing in sales as well at times, right? It's right. It, You're asking those questions to get to a pointed is this, is this a problem that they have? And ultimately, is yeah. it a big enough problem to really go after and solve and put money into, right? right? Asking those effective questions. I mean, that's a, right. a foundation to that as well. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I personally hesitate to think of them as Jedi mind tricks. I actually have the sort of opposite approach where I come into, if I'm like tasked with upsell, for example, I try to come into those calls with the acknowledgement that all the wisdom is already in the room on the customer side. The customer already has all the wisdom they know and need uh, to make a purchasing decision. And all my job is, is to be a facilitator in connecting that wisdom with whatever product or service I'm offering and the value that it provides. Especially because me on the customer success side, I am responsible for delivering on the promises that I make, right? Which is a, a tough balance to strike. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, I am, uh, I've described myself many times as sort of like a, a, a reluctant salesperson in those types of situations. Uh, but, but I think that, uh, I have learned a lot of techniques to get deep into the, the why of why a customer is even having a call to begin with, let alone why they buy the product, you know? I love that. I love how you're tying this start with why to customer success to everything you're talking about there. Um, I know it's a foundation in my life here as well. Um, yeah. One thing you mentioned, delivering on the promises that you make, I think is a huge line. And I think that this is one, and we'll talk about customer success a little bit later on, sure. but I'm a true believer that instead, you know, everybody talks about all oh, the BDRs going away or, or what's going to be this entry level role. I truly wholeheartedly believe that reps, uh, sales reps before they start selling should go in the post-sale side of things to look at customer success and account management because you're learning, talking to customers and understanding what that pain is, understanding the personas that you're talking to. And you and to your point, deli uh, you're delivering the promises that you're making. It's not just, hey, we're the pre-sale side of things and we're going to promise whatever you need and then just throw it over the fence to customer success and then have them figure it out as well. I think if they're taking around in support or working with customers and practice some of this upselling, I think it could be a really effective way to come in and and really learn that product so that they could become a better seller and, and better for the whole business because they they see the whole value of the customer journey and not just the uh, the beginning part of it as well. You have any thoughts on on that as well? 
Yeah, tons. I think that building, uh, you know, I sort of brand myself as a customer success consultant, but really I think of myself as a go-to-market consultant more generally. And a lot of times what that entails is building scalable, functional, interdepartmental relationships. I think CS teams in particular, they have a really hard time building good relationships with their sales teams. Um, and so there's a lot of trainings that I do on, I have like a, what I call an 11 step methodology to improve a sales to customer success handoffs and relationships. And That's then, a whole nother podcast. That whole, whole hand, I mean, we could probably talk about that all day. <laughs> yeah. And then another one for, for product too. I think that, you know, the, the term that I, I hear often between CS and product is that they're frenemies, right? <laughs> And I was just at a meetup yesterday where this was the, the core topic of, of conversation um, on, a, on a panel was basically how do you build scalable, effective CS product relations where like on CS, a lot of times we treat our customers' demands as if like they are our own, right? And we will fight tooth and nail for our customers. That's what you want from a CSM, but it also doesn't always lead to the easiest, best, you know, uh, internal relationships within a company. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I love that, that portion as well. And and there's really so much to talk to because I see customer success and account management as the core pillars of the business, because they have uh, hubs out to all of those areas for marketing, for, for customer testimonials. They're talking to, to them all right. the time. Um, product. It's really important too, because I have been at companies that have done this before and seen it time and time again, where the product team is building a product that's not necessarily aligning to what the teams are hearing in the field. And mm -hmm. I'm not just saying as an individual contributor or AM or customer success leader to, to say like, Hey, we need to do everything. But I think having, but not having a, a tight relation between those groups could make or break a company. Yeah. And also, we also have to be thinking about too, because I see it from both sides. The customer success team is, hey, we need this for the customer. The product team is, we need to build this and we only have so many engineering hours and all of that stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Customer success needs to be really tied into what's going on with the roadmap and what's happening, I think, just so right. that they can understand that or at least know when to push or when to pull and say, hey, this may be a little bit bigger of a priority or have we really considered this? So right. <laughs> I know that that was a ton there. What, any, what are your, what's your thoughts on, what's your rebuttal to that? <laughs> yeah, I can't say I have a rebuttal. I actually just a, a compliment to that actually is that uh, I think you're calling out an important uh, point where if I read between the lines of what you just said, I mean, they, there is in particular in startups, there's an imperative to figure out a common language between product sales, customer success that conveys priority. So for example, one of my colleagues yesterday, um, she was mentioning that on her team in their company, they have a term they use, it's cost of delay. So what is the cost of delaying this feature? And it can be a one to 10 scale, of, which you know is going to be subjective, right? It's going and people are going to inflate their scores because that's just what people do. Of course, right? this is a 10 out of 10. We needed this yesterday. Yeah, right? everyone's gonna, you know, but there are internal checks and balances to sort of uh, correct against that. And there's a lot of deep analysis and you know cross-examination, so to speak, of, <laughs> of why something is a 10 out of 10. Um, but I think that the fact that she and her company have found a way to build a common language and a common metric, which even if it's partially subjective, it's better than nothing across all departments. Um, I thought that was like a really cool, uh, approach that I hadn't heard before until yesterday. And let's face it. Everybody's going to be subjective because they want to have their own gains over something else. But yeah. as long as it, but, but there is a happy balance there as well. Right. Um, 
I, yeah, I'm just, a, I'm a true believer that, and I think the other main bow before we jump back into your college and all of that stuff as well is, um, is that we need to be well-rounded and, and have, and be able to communicate with cross cross-functionally and understand what's going on right. across the business. Because as I said before, marketing testimonials, referrals, um, sales, we could have a nice smooth handoff. I'm a true believer that customer success needs to, or should be coming in towards the end of a, a pre-sales mm -hmm. motion so that it's a nice smooth handoff back to, uh, that's probably in your 11 step process as well. <laughs> um, but the other, and obviously we talked about product, there's so many areas that it's so crucial that these teams are all working together. Um, so, so I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that as well, but let's Absolutely. talk about, so we talked about debate. We talked about customer success. We'll talk more about that. Why did you want to go to study psychology at the university of Penn? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think I, I, I was a very philosophical person growing up. And I actually went to school, I went to Penn with the thought that I would study philosophy. And what I found is that when I was taking psychology, that psychology was, was a way to take the big questions of the world of philosophy and apply the scientific method to them, right? To apply like rigorous methodology, research methodology to those questions. And that's exactly the type of critical thinking that I think uh, has been foundational to my career, where it's like, if I'm, for example, if I'm trying to decide between two different ways to email customers to get their attention to book a meeting, right? Like every customer success person and every salesperson I know has certain folks who ghost them, right? So the question is, how do we prevent that with a playbook? And I think a lot of times it boils down to A-B testing different methodologies, right? A-B testing is exactly the same thing as running a controlled experiment in psychology. Well, maybe not exactly, but there is so much overlap in the way that you sort of structure that experiment, measure your results, and iterate and honestly learn quickly. So Just changing, only changing that one variable or understanding yeah. that there's variables that are outside of that as well. I think right. the other point on the, the you know, cause I studied, I studied the sciences as well. I did a bachelor's in my master's the graduate studies in exercise science. So obviously oh. I did research, I did uh, some, some presentations and all of this stuff. So I, I very, very uh, painfully aware of the, the, the scientific process too. One of the big lessons that I take away and I'd love your feedback on is Every single customer call you're going into, obviously you're doing your research before it, but you're coming in with a hypothesis on what you right. think actually going to be happening in their business. It mm -hmm. doesn't, what I found in the past, it doesn't matter if you're truly correct, if you're hundred percent on or wrong, but just right. coming in and asking that informed question, it's going to make your buyer coming back to the psychology of it, understanding, wow, okay, this person, that's not necessarily true. I think number one, it takes away all guards that they had because yeah. they're not even thinking about what you're trying to get out of that, they're really thinking about this person knows what they're talking about, or it's it's not similar to that, how this is different. Or in those times where you hit the nail on the head, then you're in and it's how do we, how do we actually go about trying to solve this as well? What right. do you have on that? Yeah, no, I think what you hit on there is something that's really key to the way that I think about running a business and running customer success in particular, where having a hypothesis-driven approach is something that I think so many CS teams, uh, that's an area where I, where I think a lot of teams fall short right now in particular, because right now customer success, I mean, the number of times I've seen the, you know, hashtag open a work on LinkedIn 
shows me just how much customer success teams are running lean right now. And so what I think a lot of folks are doing is they're spending a lot of time working in the business and not really stepping back to work on the business. And that's the benefit of a hypothesis-driven approach is that I always recommend to CS teams, if you have sort of a monthly checkpoint where you can reflect on what did we observe from our last month? What are our hypotheses as to why customers are churning or why customers are buying additional products? And take those hypotheses into the next month and then compare the results at the end of the month. You know, And this is a monthly regular thing, right? So that at the end of that month, you then do a, a retro to revisit those hypotheses and say, which were true, which were not? What are our new hypotheses for the next month? I mean, that is a methodology that I think the most effective lean customer success teams have that process locked down. I mean, I think whether you're in customer success or, or anywhere in the business, I think yeah. it's really important to understand are the things that I'm actually doing, whether you want to call it a, an experiment testing hypothesis work, um, understanding what am I actually doing and is it moving the needle? I think the re the retrospective part of it is where most teams are missing in my in what I've right. seen. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of times people index very heavily on certain case studies. Like, they're like, oh yeah, none of our deals that are coming through from sales are a good customer fit. When really it's just, they're indexing on one customer who sticks out in their mind. That was a bad fit. This is like a perfect example, by the way, of, have you ever heard of, there's something called the availability heuristic in psychology? I'm not familiar with that. So this is like a great example of where psychology relates to my, you know, current career in the business world. So the availability heuristic basically says that people tend to judge the frequency of an event or the likelihood of an event happening based on how easily like how easily stories come to their mind. Gotcha. Times that they've heard it in the past. So like, for example, people think it's really likely to die from a shark attack, right? Turns out it's really, really not. Or a plane crash or something like that. Turns out those are extremely uncommon events. But because when they happen, they stick out in our heads, we tend to think that they're very regular events. They're very common events. But they're actually not. And I, I see this happen all the time as sort of a fallacy in the thinking of customer success teams, where they index super heavily on like this one customer with this one need that turned for this one reason. And they stop to, they don't pause to step back and say, where does this sit in the overarching trends that we're seeing within our customer base? So I try to encourage a more scientific approach in that regard. Yeah, I love that. And I think the same goes is like, you know, when you're looking at, okay, looking at that one use case, it's the same thing as when you're trying to add in potential product as well. It's like right. taking, taking that step back and saying, is this going to help more than just this one person? We can't mm -hmm. spend time on it for this. Okay, there, there are asterisks, right. right? Of like from an ARR perspective or top customer or whatever, like yeah. there's certain things that we need to do, but for the mass or the general scales, it's like, is this going to, is this going to help everybody or is this going to help this one person? Okay. So we got it. So you're this curious kid, or I'm sorry, quiet kid who goes on to debate, study psychology. And then you start, you, you become a founder of a couple businesses as well. You had a, a, a juice junkie. Well, the, the company was Fruzy, I believe, right? Yeah. Fruit soft serve that you made completely <laughs> from fruit, uh, from fruit and absolutely zero additives. And then after that, you went to own a reg restaurant called Faringi. Talk to us about these two experiences and how that ultimately led to um, just some of the lessons that you had there. Yeah, what a blast of a journey that was, but it didn't start out that way. It actually, so basically here's what happened. When you go to an ultra competitive 
you know, place school like Penn. Like I, I don't think that the, the the culture was healthy. It was overly pre-professional, right? People were super competitive about getting landing these like primo jobs out of college at these big consulting firms and investment banking firms. And here I was thinking that I had to just toe the line and apply, you know, my learnings, my academic background into into the business world in that way. And I, I applied for all these jobs and just hated the interview process. And I was so upset. And I, and I thought to myself, like, why am I upset applying for jobs? And I, I realized I was like, I don't have the, I don't have the qualifications or the interest in doing any of these types of jobs, this type of work. And I figured I'm the type of person, like I wanted to get really back to basics. And I was like, what if I start my own business? And I, I then came across this idea of, that I then called Fruzy, this idea of turning frozen fruit into a, like a Froyo type texture, right? Um, so frozen fruit soft serve is, I was like, well, that doesn't roll off the tongue. So I made up the name Fruzy, right? Um, so Fruzy is like a Froyo, but made only out of fruit with nothing added to it. And I met this guy who then became my business partner later on and learned a ton from him throughout my career. He had a restaurant and we partnered on the restaurant. The restaurant was called Ferengi. So we partnered together. We launched Fruzy together within his restaurant. And then we expanded Ferengi from one location to four locations over the next seven months, which was breakneck speed in the restaurant world. And we bootstrapped the whole thing. <laughs> and I feel like I... I was working over hundred hours a week at that time wow. in my life. I totally burned out. Um, so a couple of years later, I had to move on and move into the delightful world of SaaS, uh, which I was a, a very welcome transition. After. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so interesting. So there's, there's so many lessons here as well. It's yeah. I hear, I hear mentorship in there of like yeah. somebody who could help and teach you. And then ultimately had some great success working with them, learned a lot. And it sounds like yeah. that person helped you over the course of your career as well. But then yeah. not only just from a, an advice perspective, they, be, they went on and became a business part, partner with you as well. Right. What's the importance of finding those mentors in your life or, or ultimately how did that change the trajectory of your career? Because later on now you found, I, I see you found that you could be a, a founder of your own thing and you could run your own type of business, I right. guess, as well, which is, I mean, directly into what you're doing now after those SaaS days. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't, I can't underscore enough the importance of having the right mentors in your network and you know even though I never formally labeled a lot of people as mentors I'll even sometimes reach out to people and just say like hey remember that advice that you gave me like 10 years ago that was really helpful to me um so there are people who have been mentors to me and they may not even know it but I think yeah I mean I think the I, I feel like overall in my career I've been so lucky to benefit from people who just decided to take a bet on me when I honestly didn't deserve it. And a key part of what I'm doing in my career now is just trying to find ways to pay that back. Right. I I've, even had, I've had some harebrained ideas about maybe not so harebrained, but, you know, starting communities uh, like, for example, from places where I grew up, where I grew up was not a place where anybody got into tech. Right. I mean, you were 50, 50 odds. You were going to graduate high school, let alone, you know, <laughs> no one, no one had tech on their radar. And so like, I'm trying to think through ideas now of like, how do I take my current connections, the current place that I'm in and how do I apply that to communities like the one I grew up in and help people bridge that gap into, uh, 
you know, very, very successful careers. Yeah. And that's, I have some ideas around that as well. We could, we could take all this offline, but some of my thoughts on this, it's like, how could we try to teach um, either like middle school age kids or high school age kids, the importance of a, like sales or like not even just sales, mm -hmm. just the breaking down because people will get icky about sales. Right. But, yeah. um, it's like, but, but how do you tie in some of those main foundations of the, you know, like debate that, that was a, mm -hmm. that's a perfect way of being able to try to learn some sales type skills or business type skills some of those big transferable ones later on. Um, so obviously teaching kids sales, um, early finance, there, there's yeah. so many different things that, that people could be, should be learning um, early on in their career that would be mm -hmm. foundational. Um, so that's, that's a whole nother topic, but, um, but anyway, so, um, so, I, but I love the mission on it now. Okay. So you, you, you burned out and then you said, you know what, I want to go and do customer success, worked at a couple different roles, Qualia, you worked your way up from uh, looks like starting in operations and, and moved to director of CS, held a VP of CS role as well at a couple of different companies, ultimately before you um, before you started your own gig as well. So talk to us about some of the biggest lessons that you learned from uh, scaling your team from two to 20 or uh, growing a company from zero to 15% market share. All these are just things that I saw on your LinkedIn of right. successes that you've had. Yeah, yeah. You leapfrogged over an interesting uh, segue that I had from the food world into. Uh, oh, okay. Bye. Okay. So, I did miss this one. Okay. Now, you know, you know, <laughs> the only thing to know about that is that basically it was really funny because I left my restaurant and I was like, I will, I, I like, take my word for this. I will never work in food again. And those were famous last words because next thing you know, the only job opportunity I had was to work at this company, Eat Club, where my job, was ridiculous. My job was to go around the Bay Area, signing up restaurant to taste testing their food, the the food at restaurants, and then signing them up for our platform to sell their food. Because um, we were like a marketplace for catering orders, but you know what? We like had to have a vetting process for food to be on our platform. And so, who was the vetting process? Me, <laughs> because I you know worked extensively in restaurants before, and I knew how to you know. Taste test food. Could have been a right. could have been a worse job. <laughs> it was wild. Like the fact that that was my job that I got paid to do that. I mean, I went a whole year without buying groceries because I just had tons and tons and tons of food all the time. Um, the fact that that was my job was wild, especially in the Bay Area, right? I mean, yeah. that's. I mean, everything's more expensive out there, from what I understand. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I know. It was it was the best perk I could have asked for. Uh, the the you know. Uh, extra pounds I gained was not a perk I could have asked for. Yep. I was, you know, I was uh, not in the best shape of my life at that time. I'll put it that way. But, um, but anyway, yeah. Those, so then I, you know, I, I sort of had this moment of reflection where I was like, I, I don't know where this is going in the next five years. Like, what am I going to do? Just keep testing, taste testing food for the rest of my career. And at that time, I uh, was speaking with the the CEO of this company, Qualia, which was very early stages at the time. I was one of just a couple people who, one of two people who were uh, the first non-engineering hires to build out every team we had to build out. Sales, marketing, customer success, product. I mean, we were the types of people where like, if the dishes had to be washed, we would wash the dishes. If the trash had to be taken out, we'd do that. That kind of thing. Um, and I was like, there is no way this product is going to work because when we actually got the product to market, we just got like completely destroyed by our customers, angry customers. I mean, I heard curse words I couldn't even make up. 
um, <laughs> especially because uh, our first customers were here in the Boston area where I am now. Uh, and uh, boy, do Bostonians get creative with their curse words. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, so I, I just, you know, we had this realization at the time that customer success should be the revenue generating engine of the company. And so I was like, well, that that's where I should focus my career for this segment of, at least for this segment of my career. So we built out the customer success team there. We grew it from, it was, you know, we grew it from really just me and sometimes one other person who was largely focused on the, the sales function to then, you know, it was 82 people on the customer success team by the time I left. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we made up two thirds of net new company revenues by the time I left. So it was a very proactive revenue generating function. Well, not all of it was very proactive, but it was a very revenue generating function. Um, and then I, you know, I decided to take a leap of faith to go to this company, Regora. I say leap of faith because I was loving my job at Qualia. Um, this was like a huge, that was a huge formative experience in my career. But I found this opportunity at Regora. And now for some further backstory, I met my current wife, my current, my, my now wife, <laughs> my only wife. <laughs> I met her actually back in our time at Penn. We did long distance for like six years while I was, you know, in the food industry where I never really saw her. And then I, she moved to Canada at the time. Uh, I then moved to the Bay Area and then I moved to Austin and all this, like six years of long distance is no joke. And so I found this opportunity in Boston where she had moved to to start a PhD program. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I'm going to go to this company, Regora. I'll do the same thing. I'll start the customer success team from scratch. And maybe this will be my brand, right? It's like, I'm the guy who starts customer success teams from scratch. Um, and lo and behold, yeah, I started consulting at the time, helping other companies do the same thing. I uh, did the same thing at Tradewing as well, who is incidentally my first consulting client. And then went full on independent uh, as of early this year. So it's been a, a really interesting journey to get where I am now. Bob, thank you so much for sharing all of that crazy, that, that I don't want to say crazy information. I think it's really interesting that uh, you found your way back to uh, to your now misses, I mean, your current and only misses, as you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so but there's a couple of things that you mentioned here that were really interesting that I want to dive into. Of course, we're going to talk about this change from, hey, I started doing some of this consulting while I was carrying a bag um, as the VP. So we'll talk about that transition. But you mentioned that you're talking, you're, you're creating this brand of, Hey, maybe I'm going to be the guy who starts customer success teams. So that ties into your business really well. Before we jump into that though, let's talk about, you mentioned that you were one of the biggest revenue generators on, um, uh, the new business revenue generators, right? I mean, I'm very bullish. There's just, there's so many different ways from a customer success perspective or account manager that you could develop these post-sale qualified leads. I like to call them CS qualified leads, right? Um, former customers who are leaving and going somewhere else is a huge one, obviously. Cross-selling and expanding is another huge one of getting of getting some new business. How or why, what made you, your team, such an effective new business generator? Hmm. Yeah, I think we were pretty skilled operators. Uh, and I think we brought on really skilled operators who found very, you know, I hear this a lot, right? We talk about how it's it's a game of consistency when it comes to almost anything in most businesses, but specifically when it comes to customer expansion by way of cross-sell and upsell. 
So for example, we generated a ton of CS qualified leads through uh, support selling and through selling and onboarding. So for example, I'll just give you the onboarding example. When new customers would, I, I had this idea at one point, I was like, we should be setting customers up for upsell demos as soon as they sign for the core product. When they're happy, we're so pumped. Yeah. We're going to have this, this transformative business, right. riding the highs. Right. That makes total sense. But there was a lot of pushback because people were like, well, they just bought the product. Why would they want to like, they're not, they're going to feel like, you know, sort of almost like you're trying to sell them too hard. They just mm -hmm. bought your product. You're just establishing this relationship. Like, how could you possibly do that? Um, turns out what you're saying was actually correct is that, you know, there were customers who were like, I just bought the product. I'm not ready for this, but they weren't upset in particular, at least not on, on average. Um, most customers um, who bought the product actually were in a great position to start thinking about uh, cross-sell products. So the way it was just a matter of us learning how to phrase it and how to operationalize it on the customer success side. So what we did was we introduced a simple checklist. And when a new customer was getting introduced to their onboarding manager, the onboarding manager would say, like, I have a, some, some good news for you that if you complete this checklist that we have for onboarding, then you get a rebate uh, on your onboarding fee. And what's included in the checklist? Well, it's set up it's training and then it's it's trainings or demos on the cross-sell products, right? And customers occasionally would be like, well, what are those things? Like, why do I need them? And it's like, well, you know, part of our onboarding process is just to make you aware of the other offerings that we have so that you're an educated customer, right? I think most people in customer success have heard a customer say, um, you know, I really like your product. I like your tool, but I feel like I'm using like 20% of it. Right. So That's it's on common. us as the customer success team to make you aware of everything that we offer and keep you on the cutting edge of what, you know, what our, all of our offerings are. So that turned out to be that rebate model where like the, as soon as the customer has their setup done, their training done, their demos done, they get a rebate back was like a great way to align incentives between customers and our business goals. That was just one example of the operations that we put in place to get this really scalable. I mean, that's, that's so genius because even if it, even if I'm sure, and I don't know what the, the economics are behind it, we don't need to dump, jump into it, but it's whatever that percentage is of a discount was, I'm sure if one person bought one upsell item, it covered the discount of a number right. of other ones. So you really probably didn't have to convert on as much business yeah. as you to, and everybody's ready to, Hey, we really, we, we were able to reduce this by the way, as well. I'm sure they're probably bringing that to their CFOs, especially in this right. day and age to say, hey, we were cost saving right here, but really, mm -hmm. and, and two, I mean, it's providing value to the business, right? I think every team, you know, when I, when I was um, leading account management at Dooley, one of the things that I did first and foremost was went in and talked to customers and understand, well, how are you using the product? Could you share your mm -hmm. screen and just go over it? And to right. that point, they were only using 10 to 20% of the tool. So then it, then we had to figure yeah. out, well, how do we get more people involved with that? So then it was um, helping to, to educate some of the, the customer success team on selling tactics, on understanding what their main use case is and documenting that and finding those ways to expand outward, mm -hmm. to show them the value, to even understand, is it? Right. Um, so we did a lot of the, of those kind of checklists and, and those things as well. But um, 
I think it, I just wanted to commend you on how, how awesome of a, uh, an idea is as well. I think it's I'm really, really bullish on post-sale being able to expand business. Um, some companies that I talked to recently as well, we're actually projecting more expansion and upsell business than net new business, which mm. I've never heard in my lifetime. Right. Um, but to the point of we need to, I guess here, here's the next question. Well, and this dives nicely into some of the, the customer success um, consulting that work that you're doing right now. Um, what's the importance of teaching customer? Because uh, a lot of customer success teams right now are uh, either aligning to the the CRO now or mm -hmm. or, or the VP of sales of like they're becoming right. if teams leaders are looking for to become more revenue generating than just right. a cost center as well. So what's the importance of teaching customer success how to sell and what are some of the other major trends that you're seeing right now? Yeah, I I think it's a challenge. I think that a lot of CSMs run into three real barriers when it comes to to sales. Um, some of them lack the time, uh, some of them lack the interest, and some of them, many of them lack the practice to sell effectively. And so some combination of those often leads to CSMs either saying like, look, I'd like to be better at selling, but I don't really know how to get to that point. And, and they're not getting like, you know, pumped with company resources of like, do this sales training and, and sign up for this program and, you know, read this book on sales. It's not really like a core embedded process with customer success because there's just so many different APIs that CS is responsible for. Right. But, and I, and I think certain people, certain CSM, certain companies hire people who don't want to sell. And that's fine for certain companies, right? Like if they really believe they do, certain companies will staunchly advocate we're saying customer success should not be should not have a dollar associated with their name. No commercial terms. We want nothing to do with yeah. this. We want them to be completely agnostic with that. Yeah, which is nine times out of ten is not my philosophy. I think for certain business models, it makes perfect sense. Most of the time, it's those customer success teams that have unfortunately gotten cut by their companies at this point. Right. Right. So the the trend that I've seen in the industry is this. You know, a friend of mine described this, he's like, time is a flat circle because <laughs> customer success originated as a way to, well, it really originated with account management, right? As a way to expand business. And then it moved into this notion of being this like uh, training function or this support function or whatever, right? It moved away from the dollars and cents and then, and then like this consultative function. And then it was like pretty far away from the dollars and cents. Now it's coming full circle with being responsible for net revenue retention, uh, AKA, you know, upsell, cross-sell, right? You can't have high net revenue retention if you're not upselling and cross-selling. And retaining customer. business, right. And retaining business, exactly. So so I think that's the the main trend that I've seen lately um, in the industry is, is people are coming back to this. You know, it's almost funny, honestly, to have this realization of like, oh my God, we should be making money. Like, and I feel like that's true of the entire venture capital world that that exists today. It's like, you know, the whole growth at all costs mindset is is really gone right now, at least. I'm sure it'll come back at a certain oh, point. Oh, it, it's bound to come back for sure. I think it's really interesting though, too, because I, I completely agree with you on that as well. Obviously, I come from the AM side of things, so I'm more rev revenue generating in nature yeah. um, from more of a full cycle background. But that's why I think it's really important to... It, it, there's a fine line between, or do we want to have them commercially or do we want to have them not? 
it, right. again, to your point, I think it all depends on the type of business and the product that you're selling. And there's so many different factors to where we can't even just say you should do this or you should do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do think it's crucial. And I'd love your thoughts on this. It's how do we teach customer success reps who maybe are not selling, who are going to be either bringing in, if you have an account manager working really closely with them or going, bringing it back to an AE or somebody else who's going to close that business. How do we at least identify where there may be a potential upsell to go, go into, or how do, or, or listen to some of the the key triggers or indicators of what a potential upsell is as well. Where, how do we go about trying to educate that as well? The final thought right. is that I, I, you know, because I've a lot of interviews that I've been having right now, right now it's um, end of June, 2023. So I'm currently um, full speed ahead looking for, um, for the full-time gig. A lot of CS leaders I've been talking to are looking for somebody to come in and help teach some of their CS teams how to sell. So tell right. me more on, on what, what, what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it starts from the top. I think that, um, Leadership has to make a conscious effort to invest in customer success and net revenue expansion. So what that means is, number one, CS teams need, uh, I don't want to call it permission, but they need at least a yellow light to, when they see a deal, go close it, right? I think that that's where there's a lot of gray area for customer success teams, and they don't really know how to act, right? And I even, you know, was working with a client recently who said uh, the CSM was like, well, I don't want to sell until I know what I get in return from that. I didn't really agree with that philosophy, but I think it brings up a good point, which is there also needs to be a correct incentive alignment, right? CS should have some variable component and it doesn't even have to be a variable. It doesn't even have to be like, you know, base OTE structure. It could just be a pure spiff, like, uh, you know, a hundred dollars for every demo that, that customer success sets that gets held or something like that. Um, Stuff like that can really get the team moving, but it starts with leadership, right? Leadership has to be willing to make that commitment to turn their, uh, you know, quote unquote, relationship developers into demo setters. And do you think that that's the role of the customer success leadership to advocate on behalf of their team for that? Or whose responsibility is that, is that to try to get those, that alignment in place with the CFO or whoever is setting up some of that variable comp? I would tweak that a little to say that I think it's on customer success leaders to take an honest look and say, am I the right person to lead this function and drive these KPIs? I think certain CSM, CS leaders, myself included, have put themselves in a position where they take on more responsibility than they can really deliver on. Right. And I've had to had, have like humble experiences in my past where I step back and say, you know what, I am not the best sales leader in this organization. And I'm going to reflect like, you know, what worked for me at this last company, maybe doesn't necessarily work at this other company that I'm at now. And I've had to sort of step back and just take an honest look at who the best person is to lead that function. Most of the time, yes, the customer success leader is the right person in my experience. Um, so long as they're willing to take on the challenges of managing those KPIs and also managing reps, like managing sales reps is not easy. <laughs> um, you know, sales sales is often uh, the the way that it was described to me. It's it's more mercenary than it is missionary. Right. Like a missionary is going to be loyal, die, die hard loyal to your company no matter what. 
but salespeople, sales is much more, people treat their employment and sales often more transactionally. And it's hard for customer success leaders to adapt to that philosophy at times. No, I so, love it. And again, it's just all, all fine lines and, and having to blend where, where that portion is as well. As we're wrapping up here as well, time fl- obviously flies through this. Uh, one final topic before my final question. It's what was the transition like? You talked about being a, a CS leader, and now you're you're able to help a variety of companies with setting up some of those goals and in, in, in helping multiple companies achieve some of the goals from the success you've had. What was the transition like from being that, um, I, don't, I don't want to say IC, being a, a, a CS leader, right. ultimately to starting your own consulting gig as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I I love the transition, honestly, because I know that I myself have a tendency to get too far in the weeds and to put myself in a career position where it's no longer my job to be in the weeds sort of opened up this world where I see a few key benefits. And number one is I get to work on a huge variety of problems as opposed to, uh, you know, one problem, understanding it very, very deeply. Like if I look at an alternate timeline where, you know, I didn't leave Qualia to join Regora and, you know, and I stayed at Qualia, then I would have deep, deep knowledge in that one domain, but not a wide set of experiences across different companies, different models. And I wouldn't know like, what does it mean when you have a, a monthly subscription model? What does it mean when your company, like how, how do digital ad spend business models work as opposed to like typical annual SaaS models and like stuff like that. So the variety is, is, is really exciting. It's hard too. It's really hard switching gears between different companies. Um, and then I think the, there's a certain freedom that comes with, you know, working for yourself too, that now I can't say I don't have a boss. I have many bosses, but I, I just call them clients now. Include, you <laughs> said you have a wife, your, your wife as well. So you have, you have another <laughs> boss. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, the, the, it's cool to sort of, it's not for everybody, but you know, I really enjoy a world where I. Now let's, let's talk off. about the reverse side of the coin before we wrap up here as well. Yeah. You just mentioned that you were just coming back from a vacation um, yeah. first vacation as this business, a, a full-time business owner, and you had to navigate that portion as well, because you're, you're the, the one that's going to be held accountable for everything that goes on good, bad, ugly. Tell us yeah. like number one, how you navigated the, um, the vacation side of things being okay with taking a vacation as well, because some people right. wouldn't do that. And then ultimately, what are some of the other potential downsides of, be having your own business that besides, you know, well, I don't want to lead the, lead the witness. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, you bring up a good point. The thing that I didn't account for when I sort of went down this path is there's no such thing as PTO. <laughs> there's no such thing as PTO when, when, when you're running your own business. And I should have known this because I knew this in the past, right? I mean, it's not my first time, you know, uh, operating my own business, but, um, but I hadn't done it in this capacity. And I'm like, geez, the opportunity cost of my time is actually really high. So if I push back, if I like put all my engagements on pause, and that's not only a, a cost to the operations of what we're working on, but there's a huge opportunity cost to that time, right? That makes a vacation extremely expensive. Um, but I ended up manipulating my schedule in such a way where basically I just woke up really early and I, and I, and I, this is called the 20% podcast. After all, I figured out what is the 20% of things that I was doing that was drive, driving 80% of the results. 
crammed that in before the day, you know, the vacation day started, so to speak. And, uh, you know, before I ordered a margarita or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and it was like the first, one of the first times in my career where I felt like I really applied well, the 80-20 principle. That's what the show's, and I'm so glad you mentioned that as well. That's the exact reason why I named this a show. And it's amazing how many areas it comes into life. It's like, if you're, if you're looking at the dishes, uh, like what, what's the 20% that's going to make it look, look cleaner. If you're not going right. to do all of them, it's the big ones, right. Or yeah. you know, we have two little kids. So like, if I'm only going to spend a cup, like, I don't want to spend all day trying to pick up all of these little toys. How am I going to pick up the big ones to make the big right. ones? There's right. only a small portion, as you know, the Pareto principle, yeah. um, the 80, 20 rule of doing most of your returns are going to come from those, those number one areas. So right. uh, that's why it's so important to prioritize that. And it's one of the huge reasons why I need to show this because it's a philosophy right. that um, is crucial, all aspects of life, especially if you um, it's really a, a way of living essentially, I think, but right. um, that's a, that's a whole nother, uh, a whole nother conversation. As we're wrapping up here, Rob, this is, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. One question I love to ask every single guest on the show, if you were teaching a college 101 class based upon all of your previous life and work experience, what would you teach and why? Hmm. It's a good question. I actually gave some thought to this recently because I was speaking with a guy who he's the first person who I know has created a customer success course as part of an MBA program. Um, really, really smart guy at UCSF. And um, I think I would... I think I would follow his footsteps. I think I would do some deep research on what produces really successful, sustainable um, customer success relationships and revenue models in a SaaS world. Because I think the world of SaaS is still what, like 15 years old or something like that, or at least the brand of customer success within SaaS is like less than 15 years old. And I don't think anyone's really applied a lot of deep academic uh, research and rigorous academic methodology to that field. So, um, so I think it would really be centralized around how do you turn customer success teams into proactive revenue generating functions. Wow, I love that. And you're here, and I just hear this scientific. I hear the research and the psychology that would go into this <laughs> class and understanding it deeply, giving all these hypotheses. That's a fantastic uh, class, and I uh, I would absolutely take that as well. Where could people learn more about you and everything you have going on, Rob? Yeah, easiest way to connect with me is just, you know, follow me on LinkedIn or connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, I'm happy to have a chat with anybody. If any of these topics interest anybody who's listening to this, then shoot me a note. Uh, I My calendar is is really an open book and I would welcome any connections that people want to make, whatever the motive is. So, um, but yeah, LinkedIn is the easiest way to reach me. But if email hello at robzambito.com is easy. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll find a way to connect with anybody who has, has an interest in these topics. Yes. And tell Rob when you're reaching out that you love the episode uh, on the 20% podcast, Rob, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed the show, it would mean the absolute world if you went to Apple and rated and reviewed the show for me as well, is this is a fantastic way to help grow the show and help to bring in fantastic guests and even more listeners to our tribe. So stay tuned for next episode and have a fantastic rest of your